Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Humans are generating information at an exponential rate year over year. Much of the technology we own and interact with is continually gathering, transferring, and stockpiling this information. As designers, we largely focus on the relative short term. We design, develop, and ship product based on the technology we have available to us today. But are we doing enough to set ourselves up for future success? Are we putting ourselves on the path to leverage technology and the information it creates to design better futures? That's what we're going to explore in part one of a two-part conversation with Carl Fass, a former professor of user experience design, co-author of Figure It Out, Getting From Information to Understanding, and most relevant to today's conversation, an information futurist. Here's our conversation. All right, so I'd like to focus in on on one part of bio that we uh, just got into. It's this idea of an information futurist. What does that mean to you? Well, I think that a lot of design work right now, when people are thinking about, I've got a lot of information, I need to make an information product or service. What they're interested in is, I've got a set of skills, I need to build this product, I need to build this thing right now, I need to make it better, I need to get it out the door. And so a lot of people who work in user experience design, people who work in an area that I've been in for a long time, information architecture, usability, a lot of the work right now is the work of today with the technology of today. I'm interested a lot more in where we're going to be going, not so much in the sense of making predictions about it or forecasting the way one might normally think of a futurist, but around this idea that when you step back and you look at the arc of human history, right, all the way going back, one of the most consistent trends is the idea that we need information to build a society, to build a civilization, to live good lives. We have seen this going all the way to clay tablets. We have language, we get tablets, we get books, we get papyrus. Then we start building, we get the printing press, we get ink and pens and pencils, and then eventually we get all the way to internet and smartphones. And so we have just continuously worked to create more and more information technologies so that we can create more and more information. And it allows us to create information more cheaply, to publish it more widely, to access it from anywhere, to search larger and larger amounts of it, to organize it in all kinds of different ways. And that trend, barring some sort of collapse of civilization or an alien invasion, is simply going to continue. So we have gone through, especially over the last, let's say, 25 years since the World Wide Web started, we've gone through arguably two major phases. First, we had the adoption of the web where everyone gets connected. And then we get mobile, where everyone has information at their fingertips and you've got the web in your pocket. Alongside that, we have seen more and more interactive kinds of technologies. Now we can do touch. Now we have something that is accessible while we're driving or while we're walking or that is on our wrist. These are going to keep happening. But when you go back and, and look at the history of design and how we've designed these things, the basic idea has been you're sitting down with a keyboard and a mouse with a screen. And you look at where cognitive science comes from and how that influenced the early work in human computer interaction and what we now call user experience design in the professional world. That all has sort of 
ideas about how we think, where we perceive information from the world, we take it in and the way we think. And so I feel like with changes in how the science is evolving around understanding how people go about making sense of this, you know, the information in their lives and the technologies that we have and how that is becoming not just more ubiquitous, but also more interactive and creeping into every other part of our life, that we need to begin rethinking certain kinds of assumptions. And so when I think about information futurism, I'm thinking of it as how do we put ourselves on the path so that we can take better and better advantage of the tools that we have, of the world that is being built, right? So that we can use this more effectively to think better, to live better lives, to change the world for the better and a better place. And I've been kind of concerned that a lot of people who work on information technologies, who make products are without realizing it, thinking in the current paradigm as opposed to the next paradigm. And so that's where the futurism piece comes from. Kind of focusing in on that current paradigm and future paradigm, in your thoughts or in your mind, how do we differentiate from that? How do we disconnect ourselves from the present and really start to think of where that can go? I think that part of it is certainly it's about recognizing some of our assumptions that we have, actually articulating some of those. Over time, things kind of get baked in where you just sort of assume that that is always going to be the case. Right now, you know, I was just recently on a trip up to uh, northern Wisconsin, and you have this assumption that you're always going to have high-speed internet, and you're always going to have, you know, high-speed data. And where we were, that wasn't always the case. I had no cell coverage where I was, right? And so you get these assumptions, and you hit these breaking points. What we're talking about, or I'm thinking about, is some of the assumptions that we've long had that we've never really recognized as assumptions about how people go about doing things. So let's get to an example from the book. One of the questions that I have has been a question fascinating me for like at least 15 or 20 years now, has been, why do we interact with the world? Why do we do certain types of things? Think about playing chess. When you play chess, you're playing chess and you've got the bishop and you put your hand on the bishop and you pick up that bishop and then you move it into a particular position. And when you do that, you realize, oh, that was a bad move. And when you make that move, you think to yourself, you kept your finger on it. So now you can take it and you can move that piece back. From the language of interaction design, we would say that's a mistake. You made a move and then you pressed undo. The world is unchanged. There was no point in having done that. But there's some research that was done in the mid 90s, which pointed out that that's actually not really the case. There is a benefit for doing this. By going and moving that piece, you have now physically changed the world so that it makes it easier for you to see that that was a bad move. You could have imagined it to be a bad move, but unless you're an expert chess player, it's really hard to imagine that. So what we do is you move this and you change the world and you change the world not for the point of changing the world, but for changing your understanding of the world. And this points to a very different idea of why we would actually interact with the world at all. I think historically, one of the big assumptions we've had for anyone who designs products and services is the point of interaction really is to make these pragmatic changes in the world around us. We change the world to make the world different, to put it in a particular place. But that separates the mind from the world. So that's one example of an assumption that we have. 
you mentioned this difference between like a pragmatic mindset and what you're kind of describing in your example, you know, pragmatic is going to be more goal oriented, right? So I have this thing to do. I think about it. I make that move and I do it. And and, in your words, I, I change the world with what I do. There's something that alters there. I think what you're presenting here is is an alternate to that, to where I think designers, like, you know, say a project I might be working on where I have a particular goal. I have to support someone to do this one thing. There may be a different way to look at that than just saying this person needs to get to that. There's something else that they're going to get from that interaction. Yeah. So take an example, like a tree test. Okay, so somebody designs a website, they've got all the different kinds of categories, they've made the navigation system, they've got a big hierarchy of all the different pages, and you go about testing that to say, all right, we're going to give someone a series of tasks, we're going to ask them to navigate through this particular system and find information within this big hierarchy that we've created that will be relevant for helping them solve the task. The assumption always is, if a person takes a small number of steps directly to the information, then we have a better design. And that to go down some other pathway and back up, that is always bad. That is inefficient. It is suboptimal. But that also exposes you to other information. It helps you learn more about how the categories are. What really is behind this particular label? What is under that particular menu? And you begin to get the lay of the land. And if you're going to keep coming back and keep using this, that sort of exploration gives you information, gives you some insight and understanding. And so you've gone through and it's not always about being optimal. There's a lot of work that gets done when we make products and services around optimality. And anytime somebody uses that word, my reaction immediately is, well, optimal relative to what? And you can't optimize relative to all things. You can only do it to a few things. And so if we have a fairly narrow view of interaction and why people interact with information, I think we cut out a whole range of things. We don't see some of the benefits of why people interact with the world at all. I think a term that I hear more and more, and I've seen some controversy around this, around simplicity. So when you talk about optimal, it's this simplicity. Is it simple to use or it should be simple to use? And I think from talking with you now and conversations we have in the past, simplicity is also highly relative. It's relative to context of the person, to the goal, anything like that. But at the same time, it's not always the goal to make it simple. Not every action should be simple. You, you have to prioritize how you present things. And to your point, you are learning. If we're looking at this in the context of an interface, you're learning that interface. Not everything needs to be right in front of you because if everything's in front of you, then it's going to be a mess. Yes. And some things do need to be simple for sure, right? Some things should not force you to pause, to think and reflect. I mean, for example, I mean, I wrote a dissertation and now I've written a book and those things are not simple. They will never be simple. They're not supposed to be simple, right? And 
I think that is true for many complex kinds of things. Design is not simple. You need to make things simple relative to the situation, relative to people's goals and what you're trying to design for. But that is not always meaning that you need to strip everything away. Now, it's also different, for example, a lot of people do that because they're working for very large organizations which are creating apps and services where they're trying to reach a mass market. You know, you think about a lot of the changes that have happened in user experience over the last 20 years. We have for a number of years now been kind of in a boomerang system where, you know, technology used to be originally for like the big, big organizations, right? The best technology went to the big organizations and then became smaller organizations. And eventually what happened with the web and with mobile is that all technology, which meant that a lot of the design problems shifted to the consumer, shifted to the consumer market, shifted to individuals, right? And now what we've seen is a lot of user experience work is happening within organizations for enterprise applications. Now, those apps need to be better designed. They need to be more usable. That doesn't mean they need to be simple. A lot of internal applications are dealing with very complex problems, right? You're a company that does healthcare technology. Well, the person on the other end, it needs to be fairly simple and very clear about how do I find, you know, whether or not I'm covered, where I can get access to this particular procedure? Like you need to make that kind of stuff. How do I sign up? How do I schedule an appointment? Those things. But the doctors who are looking at the results of the, uh, the medical tests, trying to understand all the information, dealing with all of that, like that's actually much more complex. And you need to have something that matches that. Having said that, Tools like Epic, which is the big healthcare technology uh, platform, are notorious for being like overly complex. So there is certainly a balance to be struck, but you can never and should not make it simple in the same sense. It's interesting you bring, I think anytime we have conversations around this balance of complexity and simplicity and kind of what the conversation that we're having right now, there's always good case studies when you kind of talk about medical. Or legal. True. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Space science. Um, you know, going to the moon is not a case of let's push a button and away we yeah. go. Yeah. Right. I think that there's a great desire in a lot of design circles to take almost everything and just basically collapse it down to press a button. And I should say technology as well. Right. But every time we do that, every time we take something and we collapse it down to now it's just a button press that opens up new possibilities. Now we have all of these other things that we can do. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that this is going to be a two part conversation with Carl. Uh, in part two, we're going to dive into a topic that Carl has been exploring for uh, over a decade called epistemic actions, or how we use the physical environment to facilitate cognition and understanding. I've personally been fascinated by this concept since I was first introduced to it by Carl as a student of his more than a decade ago. But that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating or review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow us on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast at design underscore every. And you can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and our audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. 
We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.